one two one two and we are buck world's most smoked out podcast <laughs> i got one more one more thing one more treat for y'all now the thing is a lot of people on my podcast know me as a, a montreal guy okay right even yeah. though i live in toronto gotcha however i always make sure to make people know i'm from montreal yeah and anytime i see montreal stars rise from yeah. the city yeah i always be like yo he from montreal you know <laughs> he's from montreal yeah just for people who don't know you yeah know what I'm saying? yeah and i see you in mad interviews uh-huh um and i i i'm really proud to 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 know that you represented our city from such a long time mm, to, to sure. where we are now. Yeah, you know yeah. What I'm saying? Yeah. So for the people who don't know, who live under a rock, um, I'm gonna put my live on here. Quick okay. Fast. You know what I'm saying? Um, for the people who don't know and live under a rock, and I'm fucking with my 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 internet's in some kind of bad ways today. I have DJ A Track, and before we got on um. On tape, we were talking about how the DJ is not really put in a name anymore. Yeah. So, the first question I have, and I'm gonna just, I'm not gonna take too much of your time, all right? No problem. Yeah. First record ever. What was the first record that you ever got from when you started DJ? You know what's funny? I was just telling these guys the first record that I bought was the Smith and Wesson album, The Shining. Really? Yeah. Sick. Yeah. So basically, like, when I started to scratch, I was just kind of messing around with my dad's records, Uh you know, whatever, like, the family record collection. Like, I really remember cutting up, like, Songs in the Key of Life. Right. Double LP. Yeah. I remember cutting that. And um, my brother, my older brother, Dave, he and I were, like, getting into, you know, hip-hop more and more. And, uh, but also, like, a bunch of sort of, like, funky kind of genres going on at the time, acid jazz you know it was sort of that era of jamiroquai and whatnot you know and so he was my brother was playing in a band that was more in that style so we, we started going to record shops and buying like records with break beats and things like that and I had, a, I had a few records from those you know from those trips to the record shop that had that kind of vibe but then once i remember when i went to chin fat the record shop in montreal oh. by myself for the first time i bought the 12-inch for Pete Rock and CL Smooth yeah. take you there. That had an acapella, mm-hmm. so for the first time I could scratch actual, actual words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, they got the chin fat. You yeah. bought me to a blast. With yeah, the yeah, fat. and and Smith and Wesson, The Shining, and then one of the first records that I scratched also was um, a seven-inch for uh, the Beastie Boys Sure Shot. Okay. There was a red vinyl yeah, that they pressed on 7-inch. I remember that. And you know sometimes they would press a 7-inch that has the small hole, not the regular 7-inch hole, so you, that has the same kind so of hole. No one that you have to put the little clip inside No, well, so I'm saying it? usually 45s have that. Okay, yeah, but once yeah. in a while, they'll press them with a small hole like, like an LP would have, yeah, yeah. which is better for scratching. Okay. And that was also, that Beastie Boys record was one of the first records I scratched too. Dope. So that was, that was the beginning. Dope. So taking you like... <clears throat> leading from the beginning to getting you forward right yeah what was do you remember your first time leaving montreal that first experience after winning dmc championship and all that yeah yeah definitely um you know i would say i would preface that by saying like right before the dmc i was starting to play a couple shows hip-hop events some of them outside montreal but not very far right i would go to quebec city or Uh, like three rivers or whatever or like toronto yeah or i remember going to yeah not even i remember going to vancouver for a show and a few things but like when i won the dmc championship that put me on the world stage Mm. it was internationally people who knew about me suddenly and really one of the first trips that i made as a dj after winning that battle was to south korea to seoul nice um because i'm good thanks there was someone from 
from Korea who was starting a DMC branch out there mm. <coughs> and scratch DJing was just so different from what the culture was there so their rationale was let's bring the new champion yeah, to yeah. Korea to show people out here what these battles are you probably so were like 16 at that time I was 15 mm. I was 15 that was one of my first in, that was the, probably my first international trip um, and I definitely remember um, shortly after going to New York for my first New York gig because you always remember your first New yeah, York gig for sure you know <coughs> I was definitely, you know, I grew up a fan of East Coast hip hop specifically. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I like the other stuff. I love the Far Side and everything else. But like, you know, when we were in Montreal in the '90s, New York was the closest mecca. You know, come on, so, man. We're course, killing you know, Nas. I gave you power. All that. All that. All so, that shit. so, um, yeah. I, you know, I went to New York and kind of got my got my uh, my props over there, and then mm-hmm. it kind of built from there. Nice, nice. But okay. pretty pretty quickly, it became like. Um, I started looking at the path that I could take to get known uh, without feeling like I had to go through the traditional, typical route for a Canadian. Right. Because at the time, Toronto really controlled the record industry. This is true. You know, and if you wanted to get, even when I started making records with local groups in Montreal, we wanted to get grants and things like mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. It felt like you had to go knock on those Toronto doors. This is true. And not to knock Toronto, but I didn't really have those relationships per se. Was it felt like there was definitely like some favoritism, where like the same groups were getting the same grants every year, yeah. the same acts were getting deals. There was a couple of ANRs who were also managers, yeah, yeah, who yeah. were gatekeepers, really. This is like that '90s time. Yeah, late '90s. Yeah, yeah. I and uh, what I did is with my brother when we started building our, fr- we had a, a label called Audio Research. Okay. You know what I mean? That was, you know, uh, we put out Obscure Disorder and projects like that, and also uh-huh. DJ Sirius from Toronto. And we went straight to New York and got a deal with Fat Beats, rather than trying to get, you know, to get in the good graces of the Canadian record industry. We were like, yeah, Canada's cool and we'll always rep it. But we were really following that late 90s underground revival, the scene of, you know, Rockus and Fat Beats and Company Flow and, you know, Quali and all of that. And, um, you know... We, yeah, we went straight to, to Fad Beats to get a distribution deal for our vinyl and became friends with some of the groups out there, Nonfiction, The Arsonist, yeah, 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 you yeah. know what I mean? And that was the route that I took. And I really, like that, the, 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 that era, I went on Stretch and Bobito twice. Mm-hmm. I remember, I, I've you been know? following all of this yeah, stuff. Yeah, so. but that was, that, that was sacred to me. Yeah. That's you know, and that was the path. Yeah. That was the path, winning battles and... <clears throat> Going down to New York, performing at the Rocksteady anniversary, mm. performing on Stretch and Barbido. Just that, you know, the true hip hop shit. And people were, and like, in that growth in hip hop times, mm-hmm. people were respecting skills more. 100%. At, at a higher basis, you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, look, everything was changing fast, and like, you know, but 97 was also the shiny suit era. 97 oh. became like. It was, know, there was puffy. I interrupt you, but me and Law were having that conversation on the way here. Yeah. Go but continue. you know what? But as a DJ, I liked everything, though. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I would listen to those Biggie records and the Bad Boy records. Yeah. But also I listened to, you know, to, to Most Def. And, and, you know, I remember when, when Eminem was doing scribble battles and, and making records with Shabam Sadiq. Yeah. You know what I mean? On you the Rockus record. On Rockus. You had to know all of that stuff. Yeah. But yeah, it was... Hip-hop was starting to become huge and... The underground was healthy in part because the mainstream was 
mm-hmm. a real thing. Yeah. So I think the mainstream wasn't a bad thing at all. It, no, it, cre- it, it, it created, created awareness. Yeah. So, but yeah, wow. skills were important for sure. Definitely, definitely. Um, fast forward a little bit. Yep. Or not even too much of a fast forward because yeah. you started working for Kanye. Like, I feel like I didn't even see when that when that happened. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I seen your name growing, and then all of a sudden, I was like, "Hey, you Kanye's DJ." Yeah. <laughs> Give me your best Kanye show experience. Um, man, I would say it's. I mean, there's a lot because I did four years with him. Mm-hmm. But some of my fondest memories were when we started bringing in musicians on stage, and he started doing the string section. Nice. And by that point. He and I had a real trust on stage where I became kind of like the musical director. Okay. And he was always busy, obviously, working on his records and projects and trying to start the first clothing line and whatever else. Yeah. So a lot of times he would tell, he would bring in a string section and we had a couple of musicians. He never wanted to have a band because he wanted to sound like hip hop. Right. He wanted the, the, the boom bap of the beats to still be there. Yeah. But he had a keyboard player and a percussionist who worked with Common. Shout out to Kareem Riggins. He was on tour with us for a while. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, uh, and a string section. And, and Ye would sort of put me in charge to show them the songs. Right. And that was a really exciting and, and just uh, enriching experience. Yeah. To, be, to, to start from being a you know, hyper-technical scratch DJ to a couple of years later, being on those big stages and uh, you know, turning into this sort of maestro where I had to yeah. communicate the bar counts to the string section and make sure they were learning their parts yeah. right and make sure, making sh- like improvising with the keyboard player and all this other stuff and then still blending the, your cuts too yeah and cutting on top of it that was really uh, enriching for me yeah. you know because I always wanted to take scratching further and, and see what expand the role of the DJ and mm-hmm. that was a prime example of that right. you know and sometimes some one of us would mess up on stage it could be me it could be yeah it could be the, the you know the one of the string players and, but then you know, either me or him would have to kind of like lasso the thing back yeah. on track and be like, no, wait, hold on, wait four bars. All right, come in this part and then I scratch and this and that. So, yeah. you know, to, to be part of this living, moving thing, that was exciting. Dope, dope, dope. So now, what was your inspiration, I guess, like after, was it your time to start the label, like right after that? What was the inspiration to start a label? Like with the, so, I know you had the one before, but Goldmine. Yeah. Yeah, Fool's Gold, yeah. Fool's Gold, sorry. Um, No problem. Uh, So having audio research earlier on taught me that it's actually not that hard to run an independent label. Mm -hmm. And also, once you're in that position of, you know, your friend makes a hot song, you press vinyl of it. Like, on some like, oh, that's dope. Let's get it out to the world. Rather than just, oh, that's dope. And stop there. You know, to understand that it's not that hard to get songs out to people that stays with you right and fool's gold was born at a time when the music was really shifting and i was getting into a lot of different stuff and more electronic sounds right and um i was producing an artist from chicago called kid sister okay and i was befriending a lot of other djs and even you know uh diplo and people like that and we were all like meshing together different sounds and um it felt like there was a new wave a new thing going on musically yeah um and specifically when it got to a point where a few friends around me had some really cool music and no one was really uh, doing anything with it beyond putting it on MySpace. Wow. But no one was really like deciding, hey, we're going to do a, a single. This will be the A side. This will be the B side. Yeah, yeah. And the artwork will be this. 
and this guy will remix it. No one was doing that with the music that was around me. But I knew from my previous experience with audio research that that's it's not that hard to do that. Right, right. And that's when I found it fool's gold. But really specifically when the music was changing and it was going more to sort of up-tempo, club-influenced yeah. versions of rap music. And at the same time, by the way, you know, OutKast was doing some up-tempo music too. Bombs and, over Baghdad. Yeah. yeah. And like, there was a lot of really cool dance hall at the time, but then you could mix that with like old, like, Soul Sonic Force kind of electro mm. and like, blended halftime with some Southern records. It was all kind of starting to make sense in our sets. Yeah. where it became this really eclectic mishmash but it also all belonged together yeah, and fool's yeah. gold came to stand for that for this new way that a, a, a sort of group of djs were you know bunching music together mm -hmm. and they went along with parties and there was parties that were going on in a lot of cities and we started doing parties and doing okay. fool's gold events too yeah. and they became a lifestyle brand right yeah. from the start yeah. records t-shirts and clothes events started expanding yeah yeah nice 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 so i got one more question okay um what's your opinion on celebrity djs yeah. like the, between besides celebrity djs and people who scratch and mix still mm -hmm. you know what i mean you know what, give me some of your thoughts on that my thoughts is uh each his own like djing is already saturated period like there's a gazillion djs mm -hmm. so I don't look at it like a celebrity DJ is taking anybody's bread away. Like, the you know whoever's doing cool shit already has to you know fight for attention and, and you know make themselves known. So right. it was already like that. It was, like it was already crowded. Yeah. Period. So if someone wants to you know get booked for a DJ set an after party whatever host some event, I don't really care. But my my one priority is. I feel like I've sort of like built a role for myself in the last couple of years where I've become a bit of a, a spokesperson, a mouthpiece for right. things that I care about and the kinds of DJing that I like, which obviously isn't the kind of DJ, DJing that most celebrities will do per se. So my thing is, as long as I'm doing my role and as long as on my socials and on my platforms and wherever I have opportunities and workshops that I do, as long as I'm able to shine a light on DJs that I think are doing cool shit right. and then with hopefully with that the fans can choose what they like and the audience can choose if an audience would rather go watch you know someone for, you know someone from a reality TV show stand behind the decks if that's what they want to see let them go paint and watch it it's cool if as long as they have the choice and they understand that there's also skillful DJing yeah. and that there's also this tradition and craft and this and that and there's people doing new shit and by the way there's, there's people that are brand new who are 17 who don't even know the tradition but are doing incredible shit too yeah, yeah. let them get some shine too True. As, so I'm just I just try to make sure that I spread the word yeah. on the shit that I like to champion and then I let people choose and I feel like also the stream of thought that's been happening is people who are going to go to those celebrity DJ events, yeah. they're not really going there to hear like jams, jams. Yeah, they're just they're going there to be, to take some Instagram pics, maybe something yeah, like that. Yeah, on some TMZ shit. If that's what they like, then they're not going to be into this. Yeah, to, to, to you know. their own. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I really appreciate you sitting with me and, and doing this. You know what yeah, I'm saying? no problem. Um, it's, just, it's, it's an honor. Montreal represent, you know yes, what I'm sir. saying? To all over Always. the world. Always. Um, 
let the people know where to find you. If they don't already know, then they yeah. they dumb as fuck. But nah, let the that's people cool. know. I never take shit for granted, but I'm I'm easy to find. A track on all the on all the networks. A T R A K. Mm-hmm. You know, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook, SoundCloud, all of that. Dope. dope. Yep. Thank you, man. Um. So yeah, man, we did it up. World's most smoked out podcast. A <laughs> track in the building. You're. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Cool.